0: All right, so um Revelation chapter twelve. Let me um let me set this up and then uh and then we're gonna look at this passage. My goal when I speak is that Jesus gets bigger, the cross works better. The resurrection is central and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. I hope we can make this book come alive for us. I hope we could do that. I hope we could, the goal is not to explain the book, although you have to sort of explain what's going on. When you read any Bible passage, you wanna ask what happened. And more importantly, you wanna ask what's happening in me right now because of what happened. And the way you do that is you find yourself in the story. We're not called really to read the Bible. We're called to allow the Bible to read us. And that's two different things, right? And so we want... We, we we want to look at that. And basically, the context of this—if if you missed other meetings—and that's that's okay—is this: this the world is in the worst spot it's ever been. It is in the worst. It is a one-world government with one-world currency, and that currency and how people buy and sell is being controlled by a megalomaniac who thinks he's God. And that guy's name is Caesar. This is a terrible, terrible situation that the world is in. He is economically marginalizing and oppressing the vast majority of people in order to enrich the top 2%. And they created a nine level class system to define who was the best humans and who were less than humans. And the less than humans were used oftentimes for sport. They were eaten by lions for the entertainment of the upper class. This was maniacal. This was ridiculous. The lower class was often used in, in, and ritual activities of sexual abuse in either acts of worship or in traditions like dual souling. It would have been a terrible time to be alive. The military superpower was surviving based on the excessive taxation of everybody else. It was circular despair. They would tax everybody at really high rates in order to fund the military that was in their hometown, torturing them. This would have been terrible. In a place like Migdal, it was Roman law that all women were Roman property. In other words, it was not against the law for a Roman soldier to rape. Any woman in Migdal. By the way, that's where a lady named Mary Magdalene is from, right? And so and so that you could see how later it says that she had seven demons. That just means she was full of them. Why? Because when you're living in that level of torment, it starts to affect your life. This this is the world that John is writing this letter into. And this was meant to be a circular letter to seven places, seven real places at real times with real people living in real oppression in the, in the Asia Minor re- region of the Roman Empire. And John is offering them hope. He's offering them a new narrative. Revelation is not a secret code about the end of the world. Revelation is the revelation of how all human authority, if not submitted to the risen Christ way of seeing the world, turns into a new Babylon. It turns in to a new system to oppress certain people and enrich a few people. And that's what, that's what's going on here. And that's what's coming against. And, and John offers this thing. The, the book of Revelation follows a five step pattern that I think follows the pattern of our life. And it's the pattern of, it's the pattern of my life, your life. It's the pattern of history. And that is this. It starts out with an, with an offer to repent. Repent is not a shame based activity. It was an offer to think about the world in a brand new way. Hey, this is the narrative of the empire. Caesar is Lord. No other name on earth by which men can be saved. And the whole empire was about the propagation of that imperial cult. But the problem with that is, is it left most people in disarray and darkness and death and oppression and raping and pillaging and economic disaster. It was a horrific situation. So John offers a new way of looking at the world. And he reminds people that there's a kingdom of this Christ. And at the end of the day, the kingdom of this Christ gets the last word, Caesar Domestian. Caesar, Nero, do not get the last word, Jesus does. And there's this offer to realign yourself to see the world how they see it. Believing in Jesus was not the point. I guess it could be a starting point, but it was definitely not the finishing point. As if Jesus can be relegated to a bullet point on a what I believe pamphlet. No, Jesus was supposed to be more profound than that. Jesus is not something to believe in. Jesus was supposed to be a fundamental way of seeing the whole world, right? And so we're offered this narrative. And there's, of course, a lot of people that say yes to that. And when they say yes to that, they're going to meet resistance. And so part of the book of Revelation is, is once you've agreed to align yourself with an anti-empire way of seeing the world, once you agree to do that, you're going to meet lots of resistance. You're going to meet lots of, like, the decision to follow Christ does not enter the world in neutral space. Rather, it is contested space. There is a force coming against life. It's called death. It's called anti-Christ. Anti-Christ. Anti-life. And you can personify that in lots of different metaphors and they do that in the book of Revelation. But the main point is, is that when we say yes to Jesus and to see the world as Jesus sees the world, it's gonna put us in opposition to things that are anti-that, that are anti-Christ, that bring death and and disrepair to the world. And so what you find in the book of Revelation, there's an offer to repent. And then when people say yes to that, there's there's resistance. And then there's this call to patient endurance there's this call to some sort of resilience there's there's a call to have some grit there's a call to that but then the oppression gets a bit much and then there's this calls to worship and the worship allows us to reaffirm our commitment to see it jesus's way so it goes in a circle so there's a call to see it jesus's way there's resistance to that there's a call to have some grit there's then a call to worship, and then there's a, reaffir- a reaffirmation that Christ's way of seeing the world is the best way to see the world. And that's that's where you're at in the story. Now, now on Sunday night, we talked about chapter 11, where what happens is, is God's plan with two witnesses to help redeem the world, they end up getting killed by the force of evil. They end up getting killed. And we talked about how that's part of our life story too, that resurrection's a thing, but resurrection's not a thing unless there's a cross, and all of us experience loss and suffering and a bit of grief. And that doesn't mean we lack faith. Great faith is not having enough faith to get out of something. Rather, great faith is keeping our head up, our shoulders back, our hands clean, our heart pure, and our taste sweet in the middle of that something. Great faith is not the absence of doubt. Great faith is the presence of profound trust, even when we still have questions. That is what we're talking about here. And so there's this, there's this thing. Now, the good thing is, is the book of Revelation at this point changes and goes pretty positive pretty quick. I mean, things start looking up a bit, and that's where we are in this story. Let me, um, let, let me, this is uh, Revelation chapter five. It's a description. John is trying to describe in metaphor and symbols and apocalyptic literature, how evil that stands against, if, if this way of looking at the world is so much better for everybody, then how is it that the thing that stands against it got such a foothold? And, and so he describes this conflict in heaven between a pregnant woman with 12 crowns And a dragon. Now, this is, this is obvious imagery about a woman who is carrying life and trying to bring life to the world. And and in this case, the 12, this is, this is an imagery of God's people and a woman who wants to bring life to the world. And of course, something that is anti that life. And, and the enemy in this case is personified as a dragon. And this is, this is what it says. And she gave birth to a male child, one to, to whom would rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God. And to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but the dragon was defeated, and there he was no longer any place for them in heaven. Like you, you you can't, if you're going to come against everything heaven is, you can't be here. And, and, And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. A- almost every title given to this enemy was listed in that one sentence. Dragon, ancient serpent, devil, Satan, deceiver. See, see it, it, in, in this culture, Satan wasn't so much a person per se, as much as it was the Ha-Satan. The, it, it, they actually, when, when they say, they always put a, 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 an article on it, the Ha-Satan, the, the accuser, the, the thing, the personification of the thing standing against God's good life and God's good world. He, he was thrown down to the earth. He and his angels were thrown down uh, with him. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads and 10 diadems on, on, on the horns and blasphemous names on the heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like a bear and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Obviously metaphors. And, and, and to it, the dragon was given power and his throne and great authority. In other words, John's saying the Roman Empire owes its power to its allegiance to this anti-Christ life force. This anti this anti this force that is anti-life. It's actually pro death. Now, what happened here? And let's ask ourselves that and then let's go into what do we do with what happened here? All right, so first, Revelation 12 to 14 are John revealing signs and symbols of the impending victory of the lamb over the beast. It is the center of a a chiasm. It is the climax of the story. The slain lamb is overcoming the world by humility, service, and dying for people, the exact opposite of what you would expect. Revelation 12 starts with the symbol of a cosmic battle between a pregnant woman with a crown and 12 stars and a red dragon. This was common imagery in apocalyptic literature. There's something trying to bring life, in this case, a pregnant woman trying to bring life, and there's an anti-life force coming against the life this person is trying to bring. In other words, the idea is the world is not neutral. God's Messiah and plan for life is met with ob- opposition. The dragon is then cast down to the earth and stirs up people against the creator and his plan for life. So, so, so the dragon gets a lot of, uh, of people on side. Hey, hey, the best life is found in being pro-death or at least anti-life. The, the, hey, hey, you could get ahead if you if you buy into the class systems, if you pay into the economic marginalization, you can actually, it can enrich you if you see the world in such a way that doesn't honor the Christ that holds all things together in them. we If we create, here's all you got to do to be anti-life. Create a system of us and them. Here's what, and then somehow convince yourself that God is for you and not for them. And that is, this is what makes Christianity so special. Christianity is the worldview when taught rightly that says actually one God, one Christ holding the whole thing together. And our job is to come together and allow people to participate in this good plan where there's not Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And we're going to do away with the class systems that we're going to, we're going to lift the lowly to the place of the elite and we're going to bring heaven to earth. That, that's the idea. That's the idea. It is is important. Let's say it this way. It's important that we see the source of evil so that we don't look for evil in each other. It's important that we see that underneath abominable things is a force that has been at work against life since the beginning. That actually, if we don't see the source of the evil, we will look for it in each other. And that would be a death knell to God's good world that he's trying to create. Let's say it this way. The followers of God conquered the dragon through the blood of the lamb. It says it this way. And they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. Well, what's the blood of the lamb? It's service, it's sacrifice, it's humility. In other words, they didn't overcome by escalating violence and trying to conquer militarily. This was a misunderstanding Jesus had to deal with. Remember, there's this one time, where Jesus uh, Jesus said I have come to bring the kingdom of God and it is for this reason that I have come to the earth. So so when Jesus when Jesus was asked why did you come to the earth? He didn't say he came to forgive sins, although he surely did that. It it, it didn't say he did not say his primary purpose was to show ethical living although he certainly did that. When Jesus was pinned down to, why are you here, bro? Here's what he said. I've come to declare the coming of the kingdom of God. For this purpose, I was sent. And the Pharisees react exactly how we would if we saw kingdom as a military thing. They say, great, well, when are you going to take over Rome then, bro? We'd love to mark our calendars so we can witness this, right? And remember what Jesus says? He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is already inside you. In other words, let me, read, let me quote it again. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say here it is or there it is. The kingdom of God is already inside of you. In other words, if you can see it, not kingdom. Not kingdom. It might be a result of kingdom, but it's not kingdom. It, it, it's very important to Jesus that we don't name our experience as kingdom. Because as soon as we name what we see kingdom, then things that aren't that are automatically anti-kingdom, and we just create another system of us in them. A- actually, Actually, when you see a good worship service, is that kingdom? Nope. But it could be a result of a lot of people saying yes to the kingdom of God at work on the inside of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even really good. Hey, if we fed 15,000 people that wouldn't eat without us next week, is that the kingdom? Nope. Nope. Why? Because you can see it. You can see it, not kingdom. Now it might be a result of kingdom. It might be a result of a whole lot of people saying yes to the work of the spirit of God on the inside of them. And what you're seeing is the result of kingdom, but it's not kingdom itself. And so what, what, what Jesus was doing and what Revelation is doing is it's turning the idea of how to rule and reign upside down. In this story, the guy with all the military. He's gonna lose his voice and the slain lamb who is willing to suffer and serve the world ends up getting the last word. This is incredibly confronting. It was confronting to the Pharisees in Jesus's day. It was confronting to the people of the first century. And let's just be honest, even in 2020 in Toowoomba, that idea is confronting. That the way to have the most influence and the most life and to be connected with, the, with Christ in the most profound way is to make a commitment to serve, be compassionate, be humble, never lord over somebody, that in this story, what you keep seeing happen is that violence and judgment do not produce the results they promise, but rather service, humility, suffering, mourning, being in it with people, that we do not run from the disorder, nor do we escalate violence over the top of it. We enter into it in order to reorder it, to bring out beauty, new life, fresh start, second chances, new creation, clean slates, and the opportunity to write a better story. Now, this is Revelation 13. This is the next chapter. One of its heads, talking about the beast, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshiped the dragon, for he would given his authority to the beast. Oh my goodness, this is, this is John, like he's going, hey, the guy that says he's God, he's, not only is he not God, he's empowered by, by the center of the force of evil in the universe, he has he given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So Revelation 13 is another symbol for John about two beasts. The, the first beast represents military power. The second beast is an economic propaganda to keep the military in power. The, the first beast seems to have a wound on its head that was healed. In other words, this beast wants to appear as the slain lamb, but turns out it's a counterfeit. Turns out that's like, he wants to appear like he's humble and willing to suffer with people, but turns out he won't. One of the propagandas about Caesar was, Caesar is Lord and there'll be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. It was written on their coins. Is that sounding familiar to anybody in terms of language, right? Caesar is Lord. There'll be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Was that true? No, there was peace in Rome, the Pax Romana, but there was horror everywhere else. It, 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 one of the propagandas on Caesar's uh, lordship was Caesar is Lord. He'll be a multiplier of bread for all people. Right? Was that true? No. Lots of bread in Rome, not a whole lot of bread anywhere else. In other words, Caesar wanted to appear as if he was identifying with humanity, but it turns out the wound was false. But the, the slain lamb, that wound is real because that God was the God that chose to empty himself of his godness in order to identify with human beings, suffer, serve, and ultimately bring a new way to see the world in a way that brings light and life and increase. The second beast makes people take a mark. On their forehead or their forehand. Now, this is an obvious reference politically to the mark of Domitian, and spiritually to the Shema. So let me let me explain. So Domitian created an economic marginalized system by which he made everybody take a mark in their forehead or forehand before they could buy and sell in the agora just outside. Of Ephesus, So this was something that was happening in the first century and it was forcing good, God-fearing Jews into underground economic systems where they're paying four and five times too much for stuff in order to just buy basic goods. This was economic oppression at the highest level. It's also an obvious echoing and a, um, a remez to the Shema. The Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was to be written on the hands and the head. It was, the idea was, it was a submission of all thought and all practice to God. It was a commitment that says, all my thought and all my practice, I submit to God on a daily or a couple times daily basis. My thought and my practice, I submit to God. So we start with a thought. Why? Because all behavior starts with thought. It doesn't matter. If, if, if In here, there's lots of different people, lots of different personalities, lots of different passions, lots of different preferences, but all of us behave in roughly the same pattern. We think it, we feel it, we say it, we do it. We think it, we feel it, we say it, we do it. You could see it in the Psalms. This was true of David's life as well. David said, my heart grew hot within me and as I meditated, the fire burned hotter and then I spoke with my mouth. That's the idea. Is that once something gets our attention, that thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and bigger until we start speaking it and then we end up doing it. We think it. We feel it. We say it. We do it. So, so the, the 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 Jews had this really nice um, ritual where they would read aloud the 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 hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they'd find a way to carry it around on their forehead or in their hands. And it was a way of, it it was a way, it was a ritual that wasn't meant to inaugurate a new reality. Rather, it was meant to remind us of what's always true, that the way of life is submitting our thoughts and our actions to God. And the thoughts and the actions are intimately connected, that, that actually, you know, there is no such thing as emotional control. Emotional control is actually imagination control. When we can bring our imagination under the obedience of Jesus' way of seeing the world, that in itself results in emotional control. But emotional control starts with imagination control. It was the submission of my, my thoughts and my ways to God. In the anti-life way of seeing the world, the one purported by the beast, he said, you're gonna put my mark on your forehead and your forehand. You're gonna, I'm gonna control the way you buy and sell, and you're gonna submit your thoughts and your actions to me, or you're gonna suffer economic consequences like you have never seen. Let's say it this way, the mark was an anti-shema. It, it was an anti, it, it was it was the anti, hey, hey, you want to submit your thoughts and your ways to the God of life. You, to survive in Rome, you're gonna have to submit your thoughts and ways to an anti-life way of doing it. You're gonna have to participate in the system that is systemically oppressing a lot of people. Then then there's this interesting sort of um Part that we're all familiar with. It's in movies. It's now it's in sitcoms. It's, it's in, it's sort of lost its meaning because it's so many places. It says that the number of the beast was 666. Well, 666 is just the number of man. It, it was John saying that Caesar's not a God. He's a man. He's a man. He's a man. man. See, it, Hebrew letters were, were numbers. There's no numbers in ancient Hebrew. A is one, B is two, G is three, D is four, and so forth. And so if you, if you spell out Emperor Nero, it says 666. If you spell out beast, it's 666. So this is, this is John going, hey, if you just check their name, not only are they not gods, they're actually, they're a man, they're a man. This is not somebody sitting high and mighty as a god. This is a man, and that man is an anti-life way of seeing the world. See, in apocalyptic literature, Persia, Babylon, Greece, Rome, they, they were all referred to as beasts. See, it's not so much the word as much as it is our imagination of what that word looks like and acts like and, and is. So so, so th- things like this have sort of lost some of their profundity and they've lost some of their life because uh, people have grabbed the images and they just put it everywhere. Google Apocalypse and click on Images. And it's always some kind of meteor coming to the earth or some nuclear explosion. But the word apocalypse just means I'm fixing to uncover a hidden thing. It's, it's the force of anti. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show it for what it is. That's what apocalypse, that's what apocalypse is. You know, 666 six, six. people like admit it. We've all thought it. If, if you drew a license plate that had 666 six, six in it, you're taking it back, right? It's like, oh, oh, you don't want that. You, you, you don't want that, right? Because this is how words work. As words journey through history, it's like a container ship. As words journey through history, they pick up different connotations, different imaginations, different meanings. I'll give you an example. The ancient Hebrew word for righteous, sedak, that, 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 that had it, the Hebrew word for righteous was Sadak. The Hebrew word for generous was sedaka, right? So, so righteousness was generosity. In other words, Righteousness in its earliest form had nothing to do with not making mistakes. It had everything to do with how you see your world, looking for opportunities to be generous and make other people's life better with no expectation of return. That is a profound way of looking at the world. But somehow righteousness over time stopped at this port, that port, this port, that port, this port, that port. And by 1950 in America, righteousness meant you didn't smoke. (laughs) To my grandmother's generation, Righteousness was a list of things you don't do. But in the ancient world, righteousness was not what you abstained from, it was what you entered into. It was just better that way. Like, my grandparents thought they'd go to hell for smoking or drinking or going to an R-rated movie, but they could hate black people, that was okay. How? That's what happens when we stuff up language in our imagination hell hell's another great example hell hell's something that that has been that the, the, the the imaginations around hell have been robbed so much that actually hell almost has no meaning now like like we we use it all over the place like it's hot as hell so is hell a description of temperature is it or we might use it to describe something we went through like i had to go through chemo it was hell okay so is it temperature? Or is it something we go through? Or people might use it to describe a relationship, like my marriage is hell. So what's hell? Is it is it chemo or a marriage, right? Or 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 we could use it to describe circumstances, like um, I had to drive from West Sydney to Sydney Airport at seven o'clock in the morning one time, right? It took me like two and a half hours, and, and and people might sit in traffic like that and go, man, traffic today was hell. Was, so so what is hell? Is it temperature? Is it chemo? Is it a relationship? Is it traffic? Because those are all really different things, right? Then we might use it as a descriptive word. Like, like we, we, we could use it as a point of emphasis to say, uh, we, could say somebody's a, we, we could use the word hell to say somebody's a good person. You could say, oh, they're a hell of a person, right? And that means they're good. Or you could say they're hell to deal with and that means they're bad, right? <laughs> so, so, so what is it? Is is it temperature? Is it a relationship? Is it chemo? Is it traffic? Is it a good person? Is it a bad person? And and you could see where, when, when you add so many different imaginations to what something is, actually before you know it, it actually almost means nothing. And we lose the profundity of what the original writer was even talking about. And that's what we're trying to recapture here. This is Revelation 13, 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, well, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. You, you see no thought here of, if anyone's to be taken captive, just to have more faith, you'll get out of it. Nope. If anybody's to be slain with the sword, yeah. hey, believe harder, fast longer. Yeah. Nope. Watch what he says. If anyone's to be taken captive, well, there it goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith Of the saints, which brings me to church. Why are we here? What are we doing? Have you ever wondered? I wonder what this is. If you're new, you're there. I wonder what this is really all about. Well, one of the things it's all about is that the life that Christ called us to live requires us to see the world a certain way. And to see the world a certain way requires something that John seven times in the book of Revelation calls patient endurance, and he calls us to do that. And the only way to have patient endurance is that you know you're not alone and there's a group of people in it with you, that you're coming together to see the world the right way. And that requires patient endurance. In other words, patience is not passive is charging in with a specific way of seeing the world. Patient endurance is empowered by a growing sense of community and togetherness, the idea that we are not alone. Seven times in this book, John calls the church to patient endurance. Now, my attempt for the rest of this message is to try to put some language around that. What does that mean? See, in this passage, endurance does not mean finding your social or political allegiance, as if God's a Republican or if God's a Democrat as if Jesus would always vote labor, as Jesus would always vote liberal. It's not, a, it's not about that. It's the church at its worst begins to worship false power and be seduced by its promises. Let's ask a few questions about this. One, do we take our ethics from the way things are? or the way they are supposed to be as revealed in Jesus's way of seeing the world? Do we actually believe that faith is not a list of what's, but rather faith is a who do you trust word? Do we actually believe that Jesus's way of seeing our story and our world is the best way to bring life to our world? And in that sense, do we take our ethic from what is or from what he sees? And that's two different things. Four, are we relying on politics to change the world? If anything's obvious about the book of Revelations, it's that politics is not the way to change the world. You can't legislate people seeing the world differently in their heart. Or are we taking our role seriously to be a part of changing hearts? Like I was so discouraged. I was, um, I was in Melbourne when um, Scott Morrison got elected. And, and let me be clear, I'm glad he got elected, okay? Like I'm for him right? He's obviously doing what God's called him to do in this moment, all right? What was discouraging to me was the sheer panic expressed by Christians when he was nine points down in the polls. (laughs) Some, This is seriously what somebody said to me. Shake! Oh no! If the other side wins, you know what they're going to do? They're going to take the plaque with the Lord's prayer on it out of Parliament House. I don't mean to be Johnny Raincloud here, but if the Lord's prayer is not active in someone's heart, having it on a plaque on the wall is not doing anything. How small do you think God is? Just a quick history of God. He overcame the watery chaos in Genesis one and brought new creation out of it. He overcame the flood in in Genesis six and brought new creation out of it. He overcame the Egyptian empire, the Babylonian empire the Assyrian Empire. He overcame Antiochus Epiphanes in 157 BC, spreading pig's blood through the Holy of Holies. He overcame Pompey Magnus in 63 BC, walking into the Holy of Holies and not dying. He overcame the Roman Empire. He overcame the Dark Ages. He overcame the Renaissance. He overcame Renaissance art. I think he can handle the labor party, right? Like God's not in heaven going, oh my me, what am I gonna do if labor wins? Are you kidding me? You know, he's not threatened by Donald Trump. You know, this guy overcame Nero. He overcame Domitian, Kibla. He overcame Nebuchadnezzar man, Tiglath-Pileser, who was peeling people's faces off and leaving them alive if they crossed him in the Assyrian empire. God said, I'll send Jonah there. (laughs) Go tell them what's up, Right? Like like the point of revelation is if the church is doing its job politics is easy. Like when the church sits back it just depends on politicians to do to legislate what we should be doing in people's hearts that's on us. That's on us. 5. Jesus could have aligned himself with Rome but did not. It would have saved his life. We are not to align ourselves with power for power's sake. See patient endurance does not escalate violence. One of the ways, one of the things that patient endurance looks like, it doesn't escalate violence. A sheep before his shearers is silent, as it says in the prophecies about Jesus. I'll I just say it this way Jesus doesn't engage everything that pokes him. <laughs> Remember, there's like, I mean, Pilate's like, they say you say you're a king. Jesus' is like, I am whatever you say I am. I'm at your court, bro. <laughs> like, like, I find this so inspiring, and I've worked very hard to build this into my own life. Jesus does not engage everything that pokes him. Donald Trump engages everything that pokes him. <laughs> Jesus Christ does not engage everything that pokes him. Eight patient endurance looks centered and not frantic. Pati- have you ever looked? Some- have you ever found out that someone you've known had cancer? And then when you find out, you're like, I'm so sorry. And you find out that they've known for six months. <laughs> and yet their countenance, their disposition, their level of trust, and you're like, what the, what's going? You are so, patient endurance looks centered and not frantic in the middle of opposition. Patient endurance looks like channeled energy. It, it's, it's knowing when to engage and when to let God engage. It, it's, it's knowing when we are at the end of everything we could do. So we step back and like, oh, what only God can do. It's it's that it's taking seriously our involvement and our participation, but having wisdom to know when we stop and God starts, and, and where the two are intermingled. Right. Let's say it this way: patient endurance looks like intentional attention. Being attentive matters because it determines what we worship. It, like the, the idea is is whatever gets your attention multiplies inside. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the Author and. But the idea is is that if we can make sure that we fix our eyes to discipline ourselves to only see the world the way Jesus saw the world, that life comes. But but patient endurance looks like intentional attention. It determines what we give worth. This is Revelation 14, the next chapter, verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Eternal gospel? Eternal gospel. This was an in-your-face confrontation. You know what? As they inscribed Caesar's mighty deeds on stone tablets all over the empire to let people know of Caesar's mighty deeds, do you know what they called those stone tablets? They called them the gospel. This is the good news of what life looks like because Caesar is in charge of us. So when they talked about Jesus, they intentionally used a Roman Empire term to exalt Caesar's Lord to say, "Uh uh-uh, your guy says he's God. If God's a man, it's going to look like this instead of that. Trust me. And that would be good news. This is John poking at Caesar. The last Caesar died. (laughs) This gospel is eternal because our guy is alive. That is the idea. So Revelation 14 starts with a vision of a slain lamb and his army of every tribe versus a well-trained military militia. Like in, in John 46, he says, the eternal gospel is when every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, when they're coming under this. In other words, this gospel, see the gospel of Caesar, the good news of Caesar only lets the 2% of people in Rome Enjoy the riches of the spoil. The gospel of this Christ has a way of looking at the world that eliminates the class systems, eliminates the gender fights, eliminates Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. It eliminates all that and says we are all one because Christ is holding us all together. Could you imagine a world that operated like that? John calls this the eternal gospel. It's a Roman term about the goodness of Caesar. This is the end of Romans 14. I mean, Revelation 14, excuse me. This is what it says. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him and sat on the cloud. He said, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung the sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who has the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for the grapes All right, so so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle. So when you see that phrase, this is talking about this imagery of this wine press. In this this instance, God is not angry with humanity. God is angry with the system of drunkenness underneath it of power. The idea that this was a system of harvest, that it is time for it to go. Let's say it this way. Revelation 14 ends with two harvests. The first is a grain harvest representing God's people. The second is the grapes representing the people's intoxication with death and sin. The grape harvest is trampled by God in a holy wine press. The chapter closes with God's ultimate victory over the system that was destroying most people. As people in Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum and Ephesus, as they were reading this, there would have been an an internal shout of praise. This would have been like, wait a minute, hang on, this message is so hopeful that the system holding us all down, its days are numbered. The idea is for us to choose which harvest we want to be a part of. Do, Do we want to be a part of the people who see the world Christ way and are committed to bringing that life to the world, or are we content to enrich ourselves at the expense of other people, knowing that that system one day will be trampled underfoot? Which one? Which one? So let's ask a few questions about this and wrestle. Number one: right now, what has our attention? Because what has our attention matters? Patient endurance requires us to be intentional about what we give our attention to that our yes must be clear. Number two, are we distracted? Are we distracted by other things? Number three, have we abandoned patient endurance? See, part of togetherness is together holding each other accountable to say, hey, don't lose your patient endurance. You've said yes to see the world a certain way. And yes, there's some resistance, but we're gonna get through this together because together we have the power to change the world. That's the idea. Have we abandoned that? Number four, can we rest into a true reality? God is, God and his rule, or are we caught in an illusion? Number five, are we saying God, Jesus, truth, kingdom, but trying to rule with violence and oppression? In other words, where are we like the beast who has a, something that looks like a wound, but actually it wasn't a wound? Are, are, are we saying God, Jesus, Bible, scripture, truth? But when you look at how we live, we're bullying people, we're powering over people, we're, we're escalating violence. So we're saying all the right words, God, Jesus, Bible, scripture, truth, but the way we live looks more like the beast than Christ. Can we patiently endure? I, I think a question we should wrestle with is what harvest can we be a part of or what harvest will we be a part of? Where are we tempted to enter into the system that brings death to most while we're rich in ourselves, knowing that system's one day gonna be trampled? Or will we by faith go, you know what? Jesus's way to see the world brings life. And I'm gonna commit myself to that way of seeing the world, that Jesus is not something to believe in. Jesus is a fundamental way of seeing our whole world. Let's say it one last way. Do we need to rest from our world? Christ has done the work. In this story, it's the lamb doing all the fighting of the beast. At some point, we have to weigh the tension between being actively involved in the infinite possibilities Jesus has for us to repair the world with him and when to know, when to step back and know, wait a minute, that fight is Jesus's job. That fight, I if I enter into that fight, I'm going to escalate this and it's going to bring death. But if I step back and let the slain land do it, now, hey, 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 at this point, I'm going to step back and let Jesus be Jesus because there is no vacancy in the Trinity for me, All Right. And and so may, and and to do that it takes wisdom to know what fully engaged in God's possibilities is to repair the world and when to step back and go you know what that's God's fight. That's God's fight. So, my brothers and sisters of Toowoomba, may we never panic over the results of elections knowing that Jesus has this thing in hand and he gets the last word. May we know that you can never legislate the morals of men's hearts. And may we do our job and let God do his job because there's no vacancy in the Trinity for us. Our job is to to say yes to the infinite possibilities, to be a part of Jesus's role in repairing the world. And may we be heart changers instead of doctrine force feeders. May we, may we be the people facilitating the relationship that allows people to continue to journey with Jesus and see the world his way. For that brings life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We proclaim you are our king and your way of looking at the world is the best. Why don't we just say a a meaningful prayer underneath our breath. Holy Spirit, Help me see the world Christ's way. Why don't we say a prayer like this? Holy Spirit, I want to be a part of the grain harvest and abandon the grape harvest. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never said yes to Jesus. And you could respond tonight by taking your first step and saying, you know what? I'm going to trust Jesus's version for my life story instead of the one I've been writing on my own. I'm going to do that. Lord, would you empower us to be the church, the body of Christ in this world? Amen. Would you look this way? Thank you so much. Let me be a part of your night. Come on back tomorrow night. I promise it'll change your life. Jesus will get bigger. The cross will work better. Resurrection Central. Scriptures get bigger, not smaller. May you, my brothers and sisters, come together and see the world Jesus' way. May we be heart changers instead of doctrine force feeders. We can bring life, not death. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.